pray. Father, we uh, affirm what we have just sung, and that is that when we are chased by fears, when, when troubles come, when, uh, when we don't understand what's going on in life, we run to Christ and find our refuge sure. He has never failed us. Um, he's always been faithful to us, and we're grateful for that. And we're thankful for your word and how it instructs us. Lord, you teach us your ways through your word, and, and so we want to learn more about how to listen to you how to interpret your word and apply it to our lives. So help us as we consider these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Uh, we'll get to, uh, to what's on the board there at the end. That'll be our, our closing exercise to see how we did in, in, um, in understanding what we're looking at today. But I want to begin with James chapter 1. And would someone read verse 22? Okay, so we want to be both hearers and doers, but what's the danger if we only hear and not do, according to verse 22? Right, self-deception or... New American Standard has delude yourselves. So James here is writing with a powerful warning that we don't want to get into a position where we we deceive ourselves, right? Where we delude ourselves. Um, and and what kind of delusions can we have as Christians? Well, we can delude ourselves into thinking that that we are in complete conformity with the Bible when we really don't know what it says, right? We've heard the word and we've rejected what it said, we've taken our own ideas and exalted them to the place of superiority rather than what the Word actually says. That's why we're, we're constantly taking our doctrine and evaluating what we believe and our convictions, evaluating what we believe against what the Scripture says. Because our convictions are good. It's good to have convictions. But those are of no value if they're not in conformity with, with the Word, you see. So... Um, so there's great danger that we must avoid. We, we must not be hearers only. We must be doers of it. So today what we want to talk about is application. And we're going to take two more classes um, at the end of this series to talk about application in, in more detail. But for now, I want to give an overview of application. And in order to do that, let's begin with an exercise. Turn to, uh, you can stay in your seat to exercise this time. All right, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and you see that there on your handout. Um, we'll get back to that first blank on your handout, um, but we're going to skip down. It says James 1.12, but it should be John 1.12. So your handout is wrong. It should be John 1.12. And what we're looking for is how can we apply this text of Scripture? How can we apply... Um, John chapter 1, verse 12. Would someone read that for us? For as many as received him, to him he gave the right to become sons of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Alright. <clears throat> so, based on John 1, 12, I must, what? 
Okay? I must receive him. Right there, verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as receive him, to them he gave the privilege to become the children of God. So, I must receive him. Good. I'll turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Someone, would someone read verse 5 for us? All right. Based on Deuteronomy 6, 5, I must. All right. Wow, this is easy, right? We're going to skip to the last one here, Leviticus, since we're right, right near there. Leviticus 19, 19. <clears throat> And uh, just a little warning here to get a little bit more challenging. Leviticus 19, verse 19. Would someone read that for us? All right. So I must what? All right, we could keep it really high and high-level generic. I, I must keep the statutes, but what about specifically? I mean, those other ones, it's like I must receive him by accepting Jesus by faith, right? John one twelve, or, you know, I must love the Lord with all my heart. We can agree with every part of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and apply it to our lives very easily. This one, you know, do not breed two kinds of cattle. Do not sow your, anybody wearing any mixed mixed uh, garments, that is, with two different kinds of material in it. Okay? I think we probably all are. Well, some of them were single-minded. They actually uh, had, had one kind of purity. Okay, possibly. Turn to First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 16. Let's try another one here. I want someone to read that one for us. Well, the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right. Based on this one, I must what? Kiss your brother in Christ. Right. All right. Let's try First Timothy five twenty three. You kind of get the idea of what I'm working towards here. Um, but let me let's just take a look at this last one here, and then I'll I'll make a point. First Timothy five twenty three, and someone read that, please. No one to drink water All right. So based on First Timothy five, I must. All right. <laughs> so uh, the point is that these last three are a lot more difficult than those first two, and and the. Part of the problem is that many of us have only one application principle. And that is, I must do what the Bible says. Right? I must do what the Bible says. And in theory, that sounds good. That, that is my application for every single text of Scripture. Then we come to verses like this to talk about not mixing garment, not mixing different kinds of material, 
um, not breeding uh, different kinds of cattle, um, greet one another with a holy kiss, drink a little wine, and we come to this and we say, well, okay, now I have to adjust my overall maxim, which is I must do what the Bible says, and now I'm going to put a qualifier on it and say this. I must do what the Bible says, except where these other passages don't apply. So what we do is we kind of just pick the ones that make sense for us, and we leave the rest and say, well, those aren't really for me, so I'll just, um, I'll just leave those behind. The problem with that is, um, let's turn to 2 Timothy 3 and just remind you of a passage on the value of Scripture. Okay, because we don't want to miss this point. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, all Scripture. So, in all Scripture, does that include these last three passages we looked at? 1 Corinthians 16, 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Timothy 5. Right? Okay, so Leviticus 19, it includes all of those. So all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then, of course, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to pierce through the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and is able to get down to the thoughts and intents of the heart so based on these two passages 2 Timothy 3.16 Hebrews 4.12 it sounds like that all of the Bible has application for us okay, it's not I must obey I, I must obey what the Bible says except these other passages so we'll kind of have a like a you know we'll cut out the parts of the Bible you know metaphorically um, that, that don't apply to us but, but the text of Scripture seems to indicate, especially this one here, that all Scripture is profitable in some way. So it has to apply to us in some way. And the question is, how does it apply? And, and the reality is that application is not always easy. And the reason for that is because we have to do some work between reading and applying. Right? And that, that's the difficulty. That's what we've been trying to work through, that there's an interpretation process. And what I'm arguing is there's two steps that have to happen before we get to the application one. And that is observation. What does the text say? What is the text about? And then dissection, you know, uh, interpretation. This is the idea of, okay, what do each of these things mean in relationship to the other? You know, this is the historical, grammatical, literary context that we were talking about. Once we've done those two, then we can move to this next one because we can't just... Um, we need to understand what the author meant when he was writing. Once we've done that, then we can move to this third step, which is application. Now we can see, okay, based on what he meant for his audience, now we can try to apply that to us. And um, sometimes the connection's not direct like we like it to, like the John 1.12 and, and the, uh, what was the other one? Um, Deuteronomy 6.5. Sometimes the application is a little bit more difficult. So in this process, again, let me just remind you of our responsibility to rely on the Word. The, the, what I'm going to talk about over the next two weeks, the naked Word, word of God. It is the Word of God on its own without any um, um, helps or supports necessarily at the beginning especially. Um, we rely on the Word of God, and one of the primary ways that we do that is by relying on the Holy Spirit as we pray to Him pray to God and ask for the Spirit to illumine us. 
Okay, one of the things that is true about us because of the nature of human depravity, okay, we are not depraved like our unbelieving neighbors, unbelieving family, but we still have a vestige of sin in us, don't we? I mean, there's still that pull, and, and there still are some scales over our eyes to an extent where we can't fully see everything that is reality. So we need the Holy Spirit to constantly illumine us, right, to, to help re- remove from us the natural hostility that we have towards the Word. And so in throughout this whole process, you know, this whole series of classes, we ought to be, I just want to throw that in there, remind us of the fact that, the Holy Spirit is the one who, who grants us wisdom, who, who actually teaches us what the truth is, and he does that by helping to re- remove some of the blinders that we have naturally to the Scriptures. So observation, dissection or interpretation, and then application are the three steps that are necessary. And we're going to take each of those steps in two weeks over the next six weeks. <coughs> but, excuse me. <coughs> Um, before, <coughs> excuse me. Before we begin observation of a given text, <coughs> we need to um, remember our four principles. So go back, go back to page one. <coughs> Do remember what that second principle was? First, a text can never mean what it never what it never meant. Third. A given text has only one meaning. <coughs> and then fourth, the Bible communicates a unified message. Any idea what that second one is? All texts are not alike. Okay, All texts are not alike. And this is what we're going to focus on today because much of application has to do with the reality of literary differences. That there are different kinds of literature in the Bible. So um, so let's look at that. That's your chart on page 3. <coughs> and what this does is break, breaks down the Bible in the order that you have it, the, the order of the books that you have in your Bible. So history begins with Genesis and goes through Nehemiah. <coughs> and then wisdom begins with Job and goes through Solomon and then prophecy um, follows from there. And then in the New Testament, you have Gospels, History, Epistles, and Apocalypse. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so <coughs> while my voice recovers here, would someone read the first one there? <coughs> History. All right, even you know, even though we might find some Old Testament heroes, they the the ultimate purpose of the text of the Old Testament, particularly the narrative part, is not that these guys are great people, look up to them, but we have a great God, look up to Him. All right, even in, in the stories of the greatest triumphs in Israel's history, um, you know, with um, with uh, Abraham and with Moses and with David. Those are great people to look up to, but they're not the ultimate hero. Okay? The ultimate hero is God. And that's why we see these people for all their faults, right? 
For example, Noah, when he comes off the ark, we don't just hear about all the great things that Noah did in his life. We actually hear that he's drunk, right? And and um, and then, of course, Abraham, you know, basically prostituting out his wife as his sister, as if she's his sister, so that he doesn't get any disgrace shown against him. And of course, we've seen David's uh, great, great tragedy. So it's not just, you know, these are our heroes and, and they do everything just great. Um, certainly, we learn from the good things that they do, but the ultimate hero is God. And that middle line there that talks about <clears throat> that the material is not a myth or an allegory is important because once you move into that, we'll talk about what allegory is, um, but once you move to that type of interpretation, then what kind of ideas start to come? Let's just take the creation narrative. Once you start to take that as a myth or some kind of an allegory, what comes out of that? Right? If it's if it if God's just um, if this is not actual events that happened in seven consecutive days, what could it be instead? some kind of evolution that's happening between those days, right? And so you have all these supposed biblical scholars um, who are just taking a combined view of creation and evolution and putting them together so that after day one, there's millions of years. And after day two, it's called the day-age day theory. So that's what happens when we don't ha- <coughs> have a normal interpretation of Scripture, which is, let's understand the Scripture <coughs> according to its historical context according to its literary context and according to its grammatical context. And uh, as we do that, we see what the authors originally intended. We don't have to force meaning onto it, which is often what allegory does. All right. Second, wisdom. Someone read that one for us. Okay, so lots of great wisdom that carries on um, just even several centuries after they're written so that we can benefit from them. And uh, much of this is done in poetry. Then prophecy. Come on, read that. So you have um, a huge portion of the scripture that is given to prophecy, and um, and so um, probably once you put that all together, because the New Testament is not the same size as the Old Testament, it probably works out to about forty percent of the entire Bible is prophecy. So what that means is that that a lot of these prophecies from the Old Testament have already been fulfilled. Right? We've seen this in Jesus, in um, you know, in the changing of sacrifices and all these things. Um, but some of them are still left unfulfilled, which we know they're going to happen because God has never failed on any of his promises. So um, these are specific. They're not general like um, like uh, like some prophecies can be, but they're specific that there would be someone that would be born from Bethlehem, right? He would be of the family of Judah and so on, of the line of David. So we have specifics, not just like, wow, this kind of amazing how this, worked out. This is God orchestrating the events of history because he planned them. All right, next, the Gospels. 
So when it says these are not strictly biographies, when you read a biography, it starts with, you know, this person was born on this day, they had this kind of upbringing, and then this is what happened during their teen years, and this is what happened. And what you find in the Gospels is that two of the Gospel writers don't even include his birth or his childhood, right? So what that tells us is that these are not strict biographies in that sense. In fact, many of the events in there are not even chronological. They're actually just drawn out different times when Jesus taught, putting them together in a more thematic way, in order to show something. Now, in the larger picture, obviously it's done thematically because at the end you always have the resurrection and you have the cross prior to that and um, and the days leading up to the cross. But when you have all the teaching section, those are not necessarily chronological. The reason you can know that is just by comparing diff- a couple of different Gospels. And you'll see that you know the way that Mark orders some of the same stories that are listed in Luke and Matthew are not the same way that they order them. So... The point is they're more thematic. They're trying to show uh, something about Jesus and what he's teaching and how he's preparing them for, for the, the church. All right, history. All right, so not much to to add to that. It's pretty straightforward. Epistles? All right, so kind of taking us from the time when Jesus was on the earth and fulfilling the Old Testament law to the time when the church is being established in Acts, and now now that the church has been established, what does that look like? What what kind of expectations does Christ have for his church now that it's established? And then finally, the apocalypse. So, any questions on literature styles? Okay, so what you can do is wherever you are in the Bible, you could <coughs> find that section of Scripture in in one of these. Okay, these, these fit. So, that's what we're going to do here in just a minute when we look at these texts. But we're going to first put it into the section of Scripture where it belongs 
and then we'll do the we'll put it into the um, type of literature within the context within the specific book because what you're going to find is well you do have in for example you have in the gospels you have a lot of narratives and a story you also have a lot of teaching you have different kinds of literature like parables and so what we want to do is find out um, what what which one of these liter literature styles we have. So that's what we need to look at next. And um, we've talked through some of these before, but I want to talk about them in more detail. <coughs> uh, <coughs> some styles are <coughs> pretty prominent in certain types of literature. For example, in history, what you're mostly going to find is narrative. In wisdom literature, you're mostly going to have poetry. In the epistles, you're mostly going to have prose. But Almost all the books of the Bible have various styles of literature, these on the back page here, whether it be prose or narrative. Almost every book of the Bible has more than one. So we can't just peg the style of literature to the book that we're in. We have to, we have to think a little bit more deeply. And really, from the first time that we begin reading as a child, we, we notice that whatever book that we're reading, that the author's using a certain style to present his message, right? The cat in the hat might be a type of poetry, right? Um, and we, we recognize that even though we might not be able to label it, you know, as a child, we, we immediately are able to discern that we're reading a different kind of literature than a, a storybook or, you know, a, a word book. You know, we, we may not be able to identify them, but we can uh, discern that there are differences. And so the same thing is true about the Bible. Once we get old enough to be able to read the Bible for ourselves, we start to recognize that there are different types of literature. There are some that are stories, and we're kind of hanging on the edge of our seats trying to find out what's going to happen. And there are others that are poetry um, um, and, and prose and so on. We may not be able to label them, but, but we certainly recognize the differences. So today what we want to do is just look at some of these, or all of these, and um, and uh, so that as we read through Scripture, it'll be help, more helpful as we come to the application part. So first, prose or epistles. This is an ordinary, straightforward explanation of nonfiction literature. It's the logical discourse that's used widely in in the, the epistles and also the lectures of Jesus and also the exhortations of the Mosaic Law. And what prose do is they state uh, logical conclusions. So because A is true, B ought to be true. And because B is true, C ought to be true. We, we're working through 1 Corinthians right now on Wednesday night, and we're seeing this logical progression, right? Because you are free, it doesn't mean that you can live however you want. Okay? Because you are the body of Christ, you need to be holy. Because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you must be holy. God dwells in you. So we have this A to B, sometimes a C and D um, kind of connection. Secondly, narrative. These are stories. They may be biographies or autobiographies, national histories, or other historical events. But unlike prose, which present things directly, narratives present the author's point in a, in a story kind of form. And so we have to, we're, we're going to get to this when we get to the interpretation process more in more detail. But, but try to understand that in a story there is a conflict that's generated at some point. It's kind of like when you begin a book or a movie you notice that there's something that's, that's troubling you, right? There's something that has to be resolved. There's something 
that, that has to be solved by the end of the show or the end of the book, right? And this happens in every narrative, no matter what it is, that there is a conflict that's generated, and then there's a climax where um, the conflict becomes most intense. We're trying, to, we're trying to figure out what's going to happen, and then finally it's resolved, and the ending of the story gives a resolution or a conclusion. And so the narrative is a, is a little bit more tricky to find the author's um, point, and that's what we've been, I've been trying to show you that uh, as we work through Second Samuel, for example. Lots of stories in there. What is the point? What is the, the climax? What's the, the I, I don't technically use those words, but every time I look at the narratives, I'm thinking in those terms. Number three, poetry. This is figurative, ling uh, figurative literature. Here the author expresses experiences, ideas, or emotions in a style more concentrated or imaginative. And power and and in a power more powerful than ordinary speech. That's what the West Webster's Dictionary calls poetry. So it's it's using emotions and and more imaginative style um, than you would in just ordinary speech. It's it's a higher intensity. Um, for example, in in Proverbs 27:6, it says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. So we can't just take all the words in that text and you know like last week we were talking about. Find the key words, find the unique words, identify them, uh, um, define them, and then um, and then understand them in the context. We did that with First Corinthians and the passage on tongues, but that doesn't work as well here. And with faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, if we had a Bible dictionary, it might be helpful. But but if we look up the word wounds, it probably is not going to give us what the author intended there, because when we read it, we ought to recognize that this is. This is more poetry. It's trying to show us um, some some wisdom here, and and that those wounds are actually um, defining uh, the the um, the piercing nature of of um, of rebuke, the piercing and loving nature. It's it's like the the scalpel of a doctor, right? It's not to wound the person, but it's actually to 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 bring them healing. And then two common poetic expressions uh, that we need to be familiar with is first similes and second metaphors. So a simile is easy to recognize. It uses the words like or as. So it's a comparison where the author uses the words like or as. For example, Isaiah 55, 10 through 12. As the snow down falls from heaven, right? And, uh, and, it, and the rain comes and it does not return without watering to the earth so is my word. So, as the snow falls from heaven, there's the picture, the simile, um, and we know it's a simile because it uses the word like or as in the Ang English language, and it's connecting it to how God's word is dispersed. It always accomplishes what God wants it to do. So that's a simile. A metaphor is a little bit more difficult to recognize, but a lot more common than a simile. A metaphor is a comparison, but it doesn't use the words like or as. So, uh, for example, Jesus metaphorically referred to himself as the shepherd. He didn't say, I am as, or I am like the shepherd of the sheep. He says, I am the shepherd of the sheep. Or I, he doesn't say, I am like the gate. I, I am the gate, right, to the sheep pen. I am the bread of life. So what that tells us is he, he's not literally a loaf of bread, right? He's making a comparison to something to help us see that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Not Again, that's another comparison. 
Um, we need to, to embrace all of him if we're going to accept him. He is, he is our sustenance. He is the door, the gate, right? He is the door that, that leads to light. All right? So simile and metaphor. Those are important to understand because that actually leads into this next one, which is parables. And notice parables are just extended similes. So what's a simile? A comparison using like or as. So a parable is an extended comparison using like or as. So this is really easy to spot when you come to the parable of the ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven is like. And Matthew's gospel has uh, dozens of these. The kingdom of heaven is like. Here's a bunch of parables. And so we can... um, easily see the comparison that's going on that Jesus is not saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who's marrying ten virgins he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like that they all need to be ready the point is that Christ is gone he's coming back and the virgins need to be ready before he comes back that that he they need to have their lamps trimmed and so once we understand that obviously then we can move to application allegory is an extended metaphor And remember, a metaphor is simply a comparison that doesn't use like or as. So these are stories that have hidden or symbolic meaning uh, used for teaching some moral or religious principles. So the example that I have there on your handout is Proverbs 15, 15 to 23. And there the author says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Well, if that's all we read, then we might think, well, we just need to drink our own water. You know, we don't need to get it from other people's property or steal it from them. That's not the point, though, because later on in verse 18, he says, enjoy the wife of your youth. So what's he saying when he's saying drink from your own cistern? What is he saying? Okay. Exactly. Be faithful to your wife. God has set up from the beginning, um, you know, one man for one woman for one lifetime. Uh, was to be how we have a relationship uh, with another human being in, in an intimate way. So only intimacy in, intimacy must only happen within a marriage relationship. Enjoy your own wife. Drink from your own sister. <coughs> so um, <clears throat> that's an extended metaphor. See? It's, it, it, it has a comparison that continues on for more than just one idea. And, and an extended metaphor is a, an allegory. Um, now, parables and allegories are like paintings or sculptures and other works of art. Right? When you go to look at paintings, you notice that uh, the paintings are not an exact representation of what, you know, especially abstract paintings. They're not an exact representation of what the, what the painter was trying to display, right? They highlight various things. They're distorted pictures to help draw out a point. And so uh, that's what parables and allegories help us to do, right? They're not, they're not he, Jesus doesn't say, you know, this exactly is life, so do it this way. He does that a lot in his teaching. But, but sometimes he uses parables to help kind of distort the view a little bit so that we highlight something that's of greater value. And obviously, Jesus said with parables that one of his purposes was to reveal things to those who listen and to conceal things from those who, um, who, who, who basically are living in unbelief. 
So that's an allegory. So let me make a cl- uh, an important clarification with allegories. Okay? Can, can anyone think of an allegory that a book that was written that's just the entire book's an allegory outside the Bible? Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress. So you have Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress. The entire book, all these names are given to, you know, what what John Bunyan's trying to show as 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 what's going on in the Christian life. He's a pilgrim, and then his name changes to Christian, and and so on. Um, so that's an allegory. Now, that's helpful, right? We we love that book because it helps us to point to things that we otherwise wouldn't have seen if he just said, you know, do this, do that, do that, do this, do that, don't do that, uh, and so on. Uh, and that's helpful. But and and those kinds of things are in the scripture, like I mentioned in Proverbs chapter five. But we need to keep in mind that allegorical interpretation is much different than what we're talking about. What we're talking about is there are some sections of Scripture that have allegories. But it's not right for us to take any part of Scripture. Let's take, you know, let's go to a narrative here in history and take an allegorical interpretation. Now, what does that mean? That means we're taking an actual event and we're saying, well, you know, that's probably not what they really meant by that. So we're going we're gonna to try to force meaning onto each part of the text. Okay? And that's why it's critical that we understand what the difference between you know, where we are in the text. Is this a comparison that's being used? Is this an allegory that's being used? Or is this actual, actually a narrative? Based on that, it's going to, be, it's going to um, make a huge difference in how we interpret. Number six is hyperboles. <coughs> These are deliberate exaggerations. Um, it's, a, it's an overstatement to, in, to increase what's being said, to increase the effect of what's being said. For example, in Psalm 6, 6, the psalmist wrote, All night long I flood my bed with weeping. Okay, really? Made a waterbed out of your tears? Is that possible? Was he lying? No, he was using hyperbole. Hyperbole, we use this all the time. See, I just did it right there. If you were paying attention. We use hyperbole all the time. Well, we don't use hyperbole all the time, but I'm, I'm, I'm over-exaggerating for the sake of effect, right? And if you have kids, you definitely recognize that, that they use hyperbole as well. Right? They're saying things like, I never get to do anything that I want to do. Or, you know, no one ever gives me anything. Well, what they're doing is they're, they're without knowing the name of it or the label, they're using an over-exaggeration to try to make a point that people in general don't treat me well, okay, which usually isn't the case, but, but that's how they see it from their eyes. All right. Yeah, I'm literally starving. No, you're not. Okay. Matthew 5:29, you know, Jesus says if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Okay, is Jesus saying for us to actually gouge out our eyes? Um, no. We have no examples in the New Testament of someone doing that in order to protect themselves from sexual sin. So what he's saying is he's he's saying go to the greatest extremes necessary, but he's using hyperbole to over exaggerate his point or to exaggerate his point to make overstatements. Then finally euphemism this is a little bit more difficult and probably um, be helpful just to have a study Bible to help point some of these out. Um, this is a substitution for something that, that we don't like to say the actual word for. So, for example, um, uh, an Old Testament expression of, of using the toilet was covering his feet. Like when 
when King Saul went into the cave, he was covering his feet. What was he doing there? Uh, Or in the New Testament, instead of using the word death or die, which has this harsh tone to it and this finality, you know, uh, in 1 Corinthians it says that some of you are sick, in 1 Corinthians 11, some of you are sick and some of you even sleep. So it, it kind of tones down something that's generally harsh to say, and that's a euphemism. Euphemism, and you'll find those uh, throughout Scripture. So let's do an exercise here, and um, we'll have to do it quickly. But what I want to do is try to connect the dots uh, between these passages and and what we have over here. Where in the Scripture are we finding these? And then which which type of literature are we using? So let's just do this first part. It's pretty easy. Uh, if you go back to your chart on page three, you can see. So. Let's take these Genesis passages. Which one of these sections does Genesis fall in? Okay, good. Psalms, Wisdom, Mark and Luke and John. Okay. We don't we don't have an example from the prophecies, but First Corinthians, First Timothy. Okay, good. All right. Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without void. Okay. Uh, this is narrative, right? If we take this as allegory, again, this is what happens when people take this as allegory, then they start to turn this into some kind of uh, um, uh, day-age theory, which is that you know there were millions of years that took place between each of the days. Genesis 15:15 15, 15 says, <coughs> as we... <coughs> we choked up. Sorry about that. <clears throat> Genesis 15:15. 15, 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Okay, he's talking about <clears throat> he's talking about death here. So instead of calling it death, he says that you'll go to your fathers in peace. Well, his fathers are already dead; they're buried. We'll go to them. So the softening of something that's harsh. What would that be? Good. What's Psalm 23 say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. What do we got there? Okay, poetry. Possibly possibly some allegory there where he's doing an extended metaphor. He's taking a picture of a shepherd and a sheep, and he's saying that there is an extended comparison between how a shepherd cares for his sheep and how the Lord cares for us. Good. But poetry. How about Mark 4, 26 to 29? The kingdom, <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven is like a man who casts seeds upon a soil. He goes to bed and he gets up. The seed sprouts and grows. How it grows, he does not know. The soil produces crops, first the blade, then the head, the mature grain in the head. So what are we talking about here? Parable. The kingdom of heaven is like we have a simile right an extended simile that's saying take the kingdom of heaven and take this farming metaphor or this this farming comparison and put the word like between them we have a parable okay the kingdom of heaven is like that should be the clue right when you see like or as you're automatically looking at some kind of a simile perhaps something an extended one how about luke 9:25 <coughs> What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? 
He gains the whole world. Okay, hyperbole. Okay, you probably could take that. You could probably take that and break that down a little bit and see that some of it is is um is some kind of a, a prose teaching. Um, you know that he's trying to make a, a point, but in making his point, he uses hyperbole. What happens if you gain the entire world? Well, no one can actually do that, and then you lost your own soul. But some of these can overlap. Exactly. Yeah, some of these can overlap, and they can have multiple. Um, multiple literary styles within one passage of Scripture. John 15:1-4. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that He bears, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Jesus is saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Okay, good. Allegory. So what, we're having, what we have here is Jesus is making a comparison between a vine and branches... And Jesus and us and our relationship to him in the middle is not the word like it or as. It doesn't say I'm like the true vine. So, good allegory. 1 Corinthians 11, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself uh, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number of you even sleep. Okay, this would be both prose and euphemism. Okay, it's prose because it's teaching a truth about the fact that, that we need to eat and drink the Lord's Supper worthily, but it uses the word sleep as a euphemism for death. And then finally, 1 Timothy 1, 5-7, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying uh, about the matters or the matters which they make confident assertions. Pros. Okay. So there you have it. There's some examples for you. As you're looking through the Scriptures, helpful just to think through these things uh, before we make application. And hopefully uh, some of this will crystallize as we, we get into a little bit more detail and use some examples as we go. Thank you for your attention. I need to uh, dismiss because we have baptism this morning. So let me pray and we'll do that. Father, thank you for your word, and uh, thank you for giving us food from it, and thank you for giving us the the utensils, um, so to speak, that we need in order to feed on your word and uh, continue to sharpen our skills in this area. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.